Well, this review is officially longer than the film itself now, which I hadn't planned, but I think it was inevitable. I thought the action would write faster, but as I deal with the last third, this part is likely to be even longer than parts two and three because there's as much weirdness in what's on the screen as there is in what's in the script. If you've made it this far, I thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to my Lex-level madness. We've learned from this exercise that I should never, ever make a promise about length, but I feel pretty confident this time in saying the next review is Whedon's theatrical version of Justice League, and it will most definitely not be in four parts. It's jarring when we get into what feels like the third act, because the movie hasn't had a conventional structure up till now, and then what seems like the climax won't be the climax. It also suddenly starts to resort to more typical superhero movie tropes, like damsels in distress. It's trying to stay far away from anything familiar to most of these kinds of movies, except, I guess, that general Nolan flavor with a lot of scenes of intrigue strung together, and then suddenly Martha gets kidnapped on the street outside the cafe she works at by Lex's goons. And later, two heroes will fight for a minute and then team up against the same huge rage monster I've seen in half a dozen other superhero films. If you're basically putting scrolling ticker tape at the bottom of the screen that says, I'm the most important, thought-provoking superhero movie ever made, you gotta have your two boats or your I'm with you till the end of the line payoff. You can't give me New Goblin and Sandman. And you can decide whether Batman or Superman is New Goblin. I can't figure out which of these guys I should actually be rooting for before Batman tries to make Superman a kryptonite spear kebab. Next, the shot fans were waiting for that they probably totally forgot about by the time it finally came. Batman in the classic Dark Knight Returns mech suit, complete with the white glowing eyes. That is pretty cool, if only it was in a Dark Knight Returns movie. Like the regular bulky Miller suit with the short ears, it feels out of place to me, because the only things this story has in common with that is that Bruce is older and he's gonna fight Superman. And lots of news anchors constantly talking, I guess. Batman gets ready for his showdown with Superman in some abandoned building we don't get an establishing shot of. Shocking. And by get ready, I mean he walks around inside for a while and then stabs the ground with his kryptonite spear for the benefit of a movie audience he doesn't know is watching him. Because he's a badass. I guess if he's consciously going from Crusader for Justice to Captain Ahab, he might as well do it with some style. And an almost literal harpoon. And then Batman goes on the roof, where he has a bat signal, turns it on, and stands there hoping Superman shows up. It's a good thing Lex kidnapped Superman's mom and is about to give him a sadistic ultimatum or Batman might have been there all night, just draining power in a big metal suit, standing in the rain like an idiot. Boy, would he have felt silly. Batman is publicly defying Superman. The light is a message. You told me not to go to the light next time it was shining, but now I'm shining the light, so come bury the bat yourself. I dare you. I don't like that whole macho wrestler-esque exchange they had in the Batmobile scene, but if Superman just showed up right now, at least that would have been a natural follow-up to the only scene they've had together in costumes so far. As it is, on first viewing, I kind of forgot about that whole thing, because once again, we're bouncing around between all these different subplots. It didn't occur to me there was any significance to the bat signal beyond getting Superman's attention somehow. Batman actually has every reason to think that would be enough to lure Superman there. He can't be sure of it, which is why it's silly he just stands there forever. But if Superman sees that, there's a safe bet he'd take it seriously after the warning slash threat to hang up his costume. 
and Lex is still laying on buckets and buckets of unnecessary motivation for the both of them. Although I guess Lex does need to put Lois in danger, because that's the only thing that gains Superman's attention in this movie, and a big reason it seems like she's the only thing on Earth he cares about. But if he hadn't bombed the Capitol, he wouldn't have to worry about Superman flying off in shame, and it might have happened already. I've said before, the movie doesn't really need Lex to make the fight happen. Now that we're nearly there, finally, let's recap this a second. Forgetting anything Lex has done to manipulate them into hating each other. Why does Superman think Batman needs to be taken down? He's branding criminals. Cruel and unusual punishment. Why does Batman think Superman needs to be taken down? Collateral damage that got people killed beneath a big superhero fight, and because a vision told Batman Superman takes over the world in the future. A huge chunk of the movie is the most convoluted master plan in the history of superhero cinema, and from where I'm sitting, these two would have thrown down eventually anyway. Maybe Superman would have been less likely to kill Batman, which I guess Lex wants as a possibility at least, so the Martha kidnapping provides motivation for that although it's not like Superman hasn't resorted to killing before, if Lex was watching both of these guys to decide how to get them in the ring together, which is already the most obvious 80s cartoon thing to do with Lex, he should have been able to tell pretty quickly he didn't need to lift a finger. Batman was already mad enough at Superman to do something about it before the frame job or Keith's notes. I need to make a Keith's notes version of this review. And Superman was already mad enough at Batman, hearing about how mean he'd gotten on the streets before the prison murders Lex orchestrates and pins on Batman. So the only thing Lex needed to do at all to make sure this happens and Batman has a fighting chance is to take the kryptonite and make sure Batman knows about it. The only part of this whole thing I'm pretty sure Lex doesn't manipulate, Batman stealing the kryptonite is the only thing at all he actually needed to do. In two minutes, we sure spend an awful lot of footage watching Batman staring upward. In the theater, I really expected Superman to show up immediately, in the shot from behind Batman, where we're looking at the signal hitting convenient cloud cover. I couldn't believe when the scene cut to Lex. I'm like, seriously? We've waited this long to get to the titular event and it's still stringing us along? Obviously, I know there's a kidnapping plot brewing, but I thought maybe the fight would happen and then somehow Superman would find out his mother needed help while he was fighting. That would put everything in perspective for him, and he'd be like, I'm wasting my time with this? This isn't what I put this costume on to do. I should have just taken this psychotic vigilante to prison and then flown around rescuing people. What the heck am I doing? But no, we can't have Lex kidnap Martha to draw Superman into a new trap. Maybe his doomsday trap? That might have made some kind of sense. Nah, he has to be responsible for a fight I don't understand why he wants to see happen, that he doesn't even need to make happen, so Superman can know his mother is in danger, be compromised, and consider killing for Lex to save her, so I'm even further questioning the principles and character of the symbol of hope, and so Superman can awkwardly say her name and contrive a way to put Superman and Batman together. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm stalling. I don't want to talk about this Lex speech. This whole thing is just embarrassing. I've rarely squirmed more in my seat in a movie theater. As soon as I saw Lex looking at the bat signal, I thought, wait, the movie is really about to say Lex just wanted them to fight the whole time, isn't it? And yeah, there are all those stupid clues earlier, but I didn't know why I was looking at Keith's checks and the Polaroids and all that stuff. I wasn't interested enough to care either because the movie didn't seem smart enough to put it all together. 
I must have been shaking my head uncontrollably at this point. Lex calls someone on the phone and says, The Night is here. It's spelled with an N in the subtitles on HBO Max, but I'm sure that's supposed to be Night with a K. Even whoever is writing the subtitles has no idea what's going on. Lex acts as if everything is going according to plan. Like he was pretty sure Batman would choose the moment Lex decides to kidnap Clark's mom to try to kill Superman. Well, what if he did that tomorrow? What if he tried yesterday? How much time has even passed since the Capitol bombing? Imagine Lex's speech to Superman then. Go fly around a while and find Batman. Try to make him fight you. To the death. Make sure he's got that kryptonite he stole from me so it's a fair fight. I had this all worked out, and it was easy to make him want to kill you. I just couldn't quite get him to come after you at the same time I was ready to show you pictures of your kidnapped mom. Oh, make sure to mention the part about the kryptonite, or she dies. We then end up with not one, but two damsels in distress in our super serious postmodern superhero deconstruction. Two. Really turning those tropes on their heads here. Lois gets kidnapped by KG Beast, and I have to wonder... Is that who Lex was on the phone with just now? Was the night is here code for grab Superman's girlfriend so I can throw her off a roof? Like they were waiting for Batman to make a move before they summon Superman. Again, I'm just imagining a bunch of people standing around all night long and feeling really stupid about it. If that was how this movie ended, it would be the greatest practical joke of all time. Oh, you know, Lex's over-the-top Requiem-esque theme really is the theme from Man of Steel Reversed. I keep hearing people say that, but for some reason I thought both two-note melodies went up instead of down. Okay, that's cool, and it sounds like it belongs in the crazy schlock this thing doesn't know it is. I want the first two-thirds reworked to match this, not the other way around. I'll take entertaining, silly trash over boring, pretentious trash any day. Let's just thugs take Lois by helicopter to meet him on a helipad, where he reveals that he knows she's uncovered his conspiracy by having that bullet from Africa analyzed. I'm not sure how. She says, I've proven what you've done. Did she publish the story already, even though Perry told her earlier she couldn't? Maybe because she now knows the wheelchair was lined with lead? How does Lex know what she's been doing? Once again, it's like there's a scene missing. If she hasn't published the story and Lex knows she can prove he's been framing Superman, why did he wait until now to pick her up? Oh, because the reason she's here has nothing to do with Lex being worried about the damage she can do to him, even though he brings up the bullet investigation. Why? This has nothing to do with that. She's here so he can use her to lure Superman to him, just like he did to get Superman to the desert. I would think he'd still want her dead unless the news is already out, which we're not told, and that would be more pressing than getting Superman here right now. But he doesn't go after her once Superman rescues her. How does a guy with so many conflicting interests go this long without compromising himself and getting sent to prison? Lois says he's psychotic, and he gives a line I'd like if he wasn't unraveling my brain with his nonsensical plot. He says, that's a three-syllable word for any thought too big for little minds. I guess I have a lizard brain then. And the line she's referring to is when she calls him psychotic, right after he says her feistiness will blow away like sand in the desert. Which is a strange line. That's the thought that's too big for little minds? Okay. I just want to watch this movie on mute and write my own subtitles. Lex throws Lois off the building, and naturally Superman can hear her scream from wherever she is, maybe still in the Arctic, and catches her immediately. 
I have no idea what the limitations are on any of his powers. Might have been more suspenseful if she dropped for a while, like she does in Donner's movie before Superman catches her, especially considering this is the first time we've seen Superman since he talked to the ghost of his dead father. The audience should wonder if he'll show up. There should be a little more dramatic flair to the return of Superman after he seemed to totally give up, like the big moment in Superman 2, when he returns after having lost his powers and choosing to give up his cape. Has he been back in Metropolis a while already? He must have been, or he was still wearing a Superman outfit under his clothes when he was hiking that treacherous mountain. This is one of the most authentic Superman moments in the film, the classic Lois save, where he's smiling charismatically, effortlessly returning her to safety, and it still reads kind of cynical to me, because I have to wonder if he would have continued to wallow in self-pity if anyone but Lois needed rescuing. Yes, he has that clunky moment of clarity after the hero cake story, which was supposedly about accepting what you can't control and doing your best anyway. But it was also about how Lois is Superman's singular motivation. It's so awkward when Lois tries to talk to him and he doesn't say anything. She says, you came back, over and over and Cavill looks like he has a line he can't remember, so he just flies off to have a confrontation with Lex. So often, these actors are trying their darndest to look like the character knows why he's making a decision in the moment, but they don't understand it, they don't seem to be getting any helpful direction, and so the characters just look vaguely mysterious or dramatic, but also, very often, totally confused. 65% of the time, Cavill looks like he just walked into a scene after asking the director, could we maybe try it this way, and losing the argument. Superman flies up to the helipad for a tense scene with Lex and spews more threats through gritted teeth. I'll take you in without breaking you, which is more than you deserve. His girlfriend got thrown from dozens of stories up. Yeah, he'd be pissed, but this might be more impactful if Superman wasn't already acting like this earlier in the movie. And now... Awkward, bizarre ramblings. Lex says weird things like calling Superman Clark Joe. Okay. Snyder says in his commentary that Lex is constantly testing people to see if they can keep up with him. That what seem like a series of non sequiturs make sense to him. And yeah, I can follow some of it, but it's hard not to tune him out because A, the movie has completely lost me by this point on Lex's motivations and his plan. B, the script isn't smart enough to make me trust all of this is going to pay off in any meaningful way. And C, this is another one of those typical superhero movie tropes. The villain who never shuts up and sounds like he's tossing all this fascinating philosophy philosophizing at me, but there's actually not that much to it. I had forgotten Lex mentions his father's fist in this scene. He says there wasn't a god to deliver him from his father's fist and abominations. So I was wrong earlier. We do know for sure there was some physical abuse going on, his father taking advantage of his power. Now that's something. It still seems pretty typical without more information, though. But it's interesting he uses the word fist not too long after a woman tells Clark someone needs to use a fist to stop Batman. Maybe there's a lesson for Superman in there, as well as Batman. Brute force isn't the answer. You just make more scars and risk creating more Lex Luthers. Lex has way too much dialogue here for that to jump out at me, and I had to write a thesis paper before I thought of it, but it's in there. Lex is sort of a dark mirror for Batman, a man of means who just lashes out because of injustices in his childhood, misusing his power. And it would have been great if Superman saw some of that in Batman, and if both of them were in danger of becoming Lex, just as Batman is seeing that in himself. 
Perhaps that parallel is intended anyway. I'm not saying good thematic ideas should always be blatantly talked about, of course, but I need a clear understanding of who these characters are before I can give a confident read on that. It's also interesting Lex uses the word abominations considering Doomsday. And since Doomsday looks just like the abomination from the end of Incredible Hulk, makes you wonder what his father's abominations were. I don't know what to do with that connection. Lex calls Superman a fraud because he's viewed as a god, and Lex has a fatalistic view of power. If a god is all good, he cannot be all powerful, and if he is all powerful, he cannot be all good. He says it almost like it's his guiding principle. But does he see Superman as a fraud because he knows Superman isn't all-powerful and Lex himself believes he's all-good? It can't be because he thinks Superman is all-powerful, but not all-good. I mean, Lex knows Kryptonite can kill him. He's clearly not all-powerful. And he knows Zod died and there was no Kryptonite involved in that. His plan is to show the world that Superman is a sham by making him compromise his principles or prove he's not all-powerful and die by Batman's hand. Until the end, when it kind of looks like he just wanted Batman to kill him, period. But I'm just not getting how Superman fundamentally doesn't compute with Lex's worldview. Lex knows Clark is a fallible man who was raised on Earth and not a god who doesn't make mistakes. And again, he knows he can be killed. So just by definition, not all good, not all powerful. What's your point? But Cap, you might be saying, the issue is public opinion. He can't stand that the world believes the lie Superman perpetuates just by being what they want him to be. To that I say, A, Lex has already turned a lot of people against Superman. Public opinion isn't on his side anymore. Why wasn't that enough? He needs the public to see a fight between Superman and a guy in a bat costume to really hit it home? And how is anybody going to see that anyway? Even if Lex has drones with cameras recording everything outside that we just don't see, he doesn't have him inside, where Batman will almost kill Superman. And B, like I've talked about a lot, I never bought that so much of the public accepted Superman in this world after Man of Steel anyway. Then, Lex reveals that he was somehow responsible for manipulating Batman into trying to kill Superman. Although, I like to think most of it was the Nightmare Batman sequence, and Lex just gets lucky that that motivates Bruce to do what he wants. Not because I like how that's handled at all, just because it's hilarious that this might have all happened without Lex at all. I guess he was hoping Superman would have snapped and gone after Batman by now, but Lex has to resort to kidnapping his mom now? Maybe that's the movie's way of saying, see, look, Superman is altruistic. Basic human reservation to not murder someone when you want to is heroic in this movie. I've said sometimes the script resorts to wrestling dialogue. Right after Lex's god paradox is presented as this brilliant, unsolvable puzzle, he turns into a fight announcer. Fight night! The greatest gladiator match in the history of the world! God versus man! Day versus night! Son of Krypton versus Bat of Gotham! Okay, we get it. God, I thought I was overwritten. Once again, the movie is as confused as Lex's motivations are. In the span of 20 seconds, it shifts from being a movie that wants to be for intellectuals looking for broad social commentary to the masses who just came to see superheroes hit each other and couldn't care less why. If they're even still watching... There's telling a layered story that continuously works on different levels, and then there's constantly flipping the radio dial back and forth between stations. In this case, both stations are full of static. Lex shows Superman Polaroids of his mother gruesomely tied up. More Polaroids. Strange choice for a billionaire in 2016, and uses her kidnapping to force him to fight Batman. 
I'm sorry, I try not to resort to third grade critique, but this plot is so stupid. Imagine this on the back of the Blu-ray box. When Lex Luthor offers Superman a sadistic choice, kill Batman or watch his mother die, Superman reluctantly agrees to fight Batman to the death. And then the quote at the top of that should be, No one stays good in this world. Did we even need to see the kidnapping? Wouldn't this be more impactful in scene if we found out about it along with Superman? But heaven forbid we ever get in his shoes and feel anything for him. When Lex tries to back him in a corner, saying that he wouldn't let his men tell him where Martha is, and that if he kills Lex or flies away, she dies, Superman acts completely defeated. He puts his head down, even lets Lex pet him like a puppy, resigning himself to this temporary power Lex has over him, that Lex is acting like he'll milk for all it's worth. Which for a minute looks like it's introducing yet a third motivation for going after Superman, possible control over him, but that's dropped immediately. The problem with Lex having Superman over a barrel like this is I don't know, as I said earlier, the limits of Superman's powers. It takes so many liberties with what he can do with his traditional power set, he might as well get random new powers whenever he needs them, like in Lester's Superman 2. Martha is gagged, but maybe he could hear her muffled screams through the tape wherever she is, and that sounds ridiculous, but then so does his hearing Lois pounding on metal underwater from like half a mile away, and that happens later. But at the very least, does Superman have to be so pathetic? No, you'll never get away with this, or you've made the biggest mistake of your life. I'd be devastated if that happened to my mom too, of course, but this Superman has two modes instant kill, and melts like butter. That's another thing that's done, I think, just for the sake of an image. Superman on his knees in front of Lex, who sees himself as bringing down a god. Lex also says Martha a total of six times in this speech, so her name will be burned in the viewer's skull by the time we get to the big moment of truce. Then KG Beast comes to Martha and, oh look, she's no longer gagged. She's got guns trained on her, and she doesn't scream or even talk, but I'm wondering if she even whimpered if Superman might hear her. Apparently that only works with Lois. And here comes another stereotypical element in the home stretch of a superhero film, the ticking time bomb. They are stacking fast, like the movie is shedding its cocoon of ultra-importance and rapidly de-evolving into the thing it's trying to deconstruct. It would be cool to see a cynical world evolve into a more traditional comic world, but it doesn't earn that. Everyone in Metropolis starts panicking at the bizarre lightning storm caused by the Kryptonian ship as it's baking doomsday at a bazillion degrees for however long you have to keep one of those in the oven. Now to throw Lex a bone, this does seem like a backup plan in case Superman and Batman join forces or Superman does kill Batman. One of the biggest complaints I hear about this movie is it makes no sense that Lex would create Doomsday if the whole point was to try to make Batman and Superman fight. The timing is really weird, but if he still wants Superman to die after the world sees the fraud Lex says he is, then I guess he would still unleash it if Superman survives, but I wouldn't think right away. I'm not sure if Doomsday would be let loose if Superman had died. That doesn't make the way Lex comes up with making Doomsday or Doomsday himself any better or any less of a tacked-on monster fight, but it doesn't come out of nowhere the way it might seem if you're not paying attention to every poorly introduced detail. And it just occurred to me, this is this movie's attempt at the two boats thing from Dark Knight, kind of. I said it needed something like that if it wanted to be taken as seriously as it's trying to be, 
and it thinks it has that with Superman's ultimatum. The sadistic choice is another classic trope that's in tons of superhero movies, of course, but this one thinks it's deeper and more sophisticated than it is. It's another idea that could be great, but is not handled right. Lex wants to prove that Superman is human, and human nature, in his mind, is to hurt and destroy for your own ends. Just like Joker wanted to prove that humanity isn't really enlightened, and people will eat each other if the chips are down. But it doesn't play because it's just so convoluted. Why does it have to be Batman? If Lex just said, go kill someone, anyone, besides me, you have an hour. If you don't, Martha dies. That would prove his point just as well. Joker was trying to push Batman over the edge, just like the people on the boats. And we're supposed to wonder how close he might get to walking over that line. But this is a Superman I'm not even convinced is much of a hero. And I wouldn't be as shocked as I should be if he stepped over the line. And Joker pushes Batman the whole movie. Lex should have been doing stuff like this to Superman from the beginning. Our two heroes are the people on the two boats. Who will succumb to the madness first? I don't think most people expected Superman to die at the end, but I don't think anybody thought Batman or Superman would kill each other. Superman tells Lois on the street that he's going to try to get Batman to help him. That's good. He sounds like he's refusing to play the game on Lex's terms, and he'll try to be the voice of reason. Then, his very next line is, or he has to die. I get a Superman who kills in the most extreme situations for self-defense or to directly prevent an innocent person from dying, but this is negotiating with terrorists, essentially. How does he know Lex will keep his word and let Martha live? There's no tension, because this scene is so melodramatic and almost funny. And then, the line I brought up several times already that cements this for me as a hopeless, ready-to-crack-at-any-moment, nearly disturbed Superman, no one stays good in this world. Doesn't matter that he's proven wrong, it's crazy that he gets there that easily. It's like he's Two-Face from Dark Knight already, and nothing bad has even personally happened to him yet. It's like Lex has brought him to his way of thinking in four minutes, because he wasn't that far off from it to begin with, considering how quickly he ran away after the Capitol bombing. And what did he learn from his Mufasa moment with Ghost Jonathan? How is that doing the right thing and letting the chips fall where they will? Sure, he won't ultimately kill Batman, but that's not because the devil tempts Jesus and Jesus passes the test. It's because Jesus gets taken down by a guy in robot armor wielding a kryptonite spear. We cut to Diana in her apartment, watching the news about the lightning storm in Metropolis, and she suddenly gets an email from Bruce Wayne. Now, she doesn't just check her mail and there's a message there waiting for her. It conveniently pings her just as she sits down to her laptop. This scene actually can't just be dropped anywhere in the movie because the lightning storm suggests it has to be in sequence with the last couple scenes. But then how is Bruce sending this to her right now? This is a point I hadn't considered until one of our contributors, The Day Ghost, brought it up to me. Batman is standing around waiting for Superman to show up. How's he sending emails? This is easily fixable by not having it pop up as a new alert. Maybe he sent it hours ago. But this movie can't remember what's happening in each subplot in relation to the others. And conveniently, there's no timestamp on the email. I have never seen an email that doesn't say the date and time it was sent. Diana sees all the surveillance videos of each of the future Justice League, shoved in here to make a big deal about a shared universe, with characters that don't factor into this story at all. Besides The Flash, when he comes back through time to warn Batman about Superman, 
assuming you even noticed they were the same character. If you weren't familiar with the Speed Force in the comics, it might not have even occurred to you that's what you were looking at. And as I've already discussed in Part 2, the Nightmare Batman sequence hardly factors into this story either, and is all about what is to come later in Justice League. Flash super speeds to stop a robbery, and honestly, that's all this should have been. And all Diana really needs to see is her picture and Batman questioning how she's been around so long and why he's never heard of her in the email. It would have been more natural and dramatic if at the end of the movie, when Batman decides they need to put a team together, Diana was like, you think there are more like us? And Batman says something like, I know of at least one, and shows her the footage of the Flash. Or maybe that's when he reveals the others, right at the end, when the story has already been told and it's not distracting us from the narrative at hand. I'm supposed to be invested in a looming fight with Batman and Superman, and now I'm thinking about Wonder Woman's mysterious past, and then the movies throwing Aquaman and Cyborg at me, who are just here as teases. Aquaman takes out a camera with his quendent, a trident with five prongs, where did he get that anyway? I guess it's not supposed to be the trident he'll get later in his own movie, if that's even in continuity with Snyder stuff. I don't know, you be the judge, it's a mess. I don't know why he has that. And we see Cyborg's origin from his father's video diary. His son seems to be dead, Dr. Stone is trying everything to keep him alive, he's engaged in some kind of mad science using robotics, he's got a mother box somehow, and then he cuts the camera feed as his son seems to come back to life, screaming in agony. Now I'm just in a whole other movie for a couple minutes. I swear, it's like storytelling by way of a Robin Williams stand-up special. And Batman is still standing on a roof waiting for Superman. When you think about everything that's happened since the last time we saw him, it's hilarious. He's been there so long, I might even buy it if he took that time to think this whole thing through and decided Alfred was right, and he just left. Then, Lois tells Perry she needs a helicopter, and at first he refuses because of the expense, but he shows he has a heart when she says it's not for a story, and he gives it to her anyway. I like that he's not just a cynic. He seems like a good guy who usually feels like he has to put his principles aside for his business. I just wish that was the resolution of some kind of small character arc as opposed to him just being a nice guy when it counts. It is weird he doesn't ask her any questions about what exactly she's doing, though. I don't know what she thinks she can do to stop the brawl between Superman and Batman, but I like that she's being more proactive than Superman has been. Kinda wish she was Superman. So many shots of Batman staring into the sky! Superman finally shows up. Two hours in, the fight is about to happen. In the theater, I'm just shaking my head because everything about this is so absurd and the movie doesn't seem to realize it. On repeat viewings, I'm shaking my head because I know this fight won't come close to being worth all the fanfare and time wasting it spends leading here. Superman immediately tries to reason with Batman, hoping to team up with him to save his mother. That's great! He's finally reasonable! Finally seems like the same guy he's been when he's in his Clark Kent guise. I don't know why he says I was wrong, though. As far as he knows, Batman is still responsible for those prison deaths and has still been excessively violent in his crime fighting. Superman starts to tell him about Lex's plot before he walks into Batman's sonar trap, maybe suggesting he assumes everything Batman has been doing is orchestrated by Lex. It's like he's working under some weird comic book logic. There's some evil genius at work, and if that's Lex, it can't be Batman. They can't both be bad, right? Superman shuts down the first obstacle, walks right up to Batman, and continues, more forcefully now, to try to explain what's going on. 
when Batman won't listen to him, he just pushes Batman across the street, sliding in the rain. When Batman says, I understand, I might have expected him to make the next move, forcing Superman to begrudgingly have to fight him. But Superman is real quick to put his hands on him. I don't know what he thinks that will accomplish, except to provoke Batman more. Superman is reasonable for 15 seconds, and then he goes right back to just reacting. Then, a bunch of automated gun turrets pop up and start shooting at Superman, who, of course, burns them up with his heat vision, which seems to make Batman even angrier. I mean, what did he think Superman was going to do with those? Batman knows none of these things can hurt Superman or slow him down for very long. They're just distractions. Superman has to know that's all they are. Lex told him this was a battle to the death, so Superman should be expecting Batman to have some trick up his sleeve. He doesn't know about Kryptonite yet, but Batman has clearly set up an elaborate kill room here. I mean, Lex is lucky it really might be a fight to the death, considering he started planting the seeds of this fight for no reason I understand before he had Kryptonite, but since he did call it that, the point stands. Neither of these guys is making a lot of sense right out the gate. If I'm Superman, once these booby traps start going off, I just grab Batman and fly him far away from here, try to force him to listen to reason. Sure, Batman could have something on his person that could hurt Superman, but my idea is less risky than what he does, and if I'm Batman, I'd have a dagger made of kryptonite at the ready so I could stab Superman with it in case he comes into stabbing range, which he does seconds after he lands. This fight could have been over faster than the Bonesaw cage match in the first Spider-Man film. So then, instead of walking up to Batman again and continuing to try to explain what's going on with Lex and his mother, he just grabs Batman by the front of his robot suit and tosses him forward again. Maybe the idea is that Superman has already decided Batman won't listen to him, so his strategy is to wear him down until he gives up, but again, he's an idiot if he's not preparing for a secret weapon. Why would Batman who's been fighting crime for 20 years, prepare for a battle with an indestructible alien if he doesn't think he can win, even if Lex hadn't said battle to the death. Nah, don't be smart about it. Just throw him everywhere and keep fighting Batman on his own turf. And this isn't a newly minted Superman. He's been at this a while now. Sure, he hasn't gone up against anyone like Zod that could really take him out, but is he vain enough to not consider contingencies in case someone showed up that could hurt him? Don't forget, he didn't need kryptonite to kill Zod. Has he never heard of the home field advantage? This scene wants me to turn my brain off and just enjoy action mindlessly, like the Batmobile scene. Except that was at least totally superfluous. I don't think the movie knows that, but it didn't matter at all to the narrative, unless it wanted to demonstrate how much of a loose cannon Batman had become, and that doesn't seem to be the case. I think that was just supposed to look cool. This is the emotional crux of the movie. It's not just a crazy fight. It's the reason the movie exists. I'm supposed to feel sorry for Batman for not realizing he's been duped by Lex, to feel for him because he's hit rock bottom and has made himself the villain. It's supposed to be tragic. And I'm supposed to root for Superman to get through to him and show him the light. But what I'm seeing is two idiots throwing each other around because it looks cool, with no motivation in the moment for the specific choices they're making. I know what their grander motivations are, such as they are, but I don't know why they make the combat decisions they do in the moment. Every time Superman makes a move before they wind up inside the building, he takes a second, like he's about to say something, and then he goes, ah, never mind, I'll just throw him again. I had a line, can't remember it, guess it's time for another million dollar stunt. Now Superman's just throwing him around because he's mad. 
Does he still think he made a mistake? This is a completely different guy than the one who landed just a couple minutes ago. He's reverted right back to consider this mercy Superman, with his next line, stay down. If I wanted it, you'd be dead already. Batman thinks you're the bad guy, and you're trying to convince him to help you. Stop acting like the bad guy. Yes, Batman didn't listen to Superman's warning. He cuts him off when he first gets there. But in all the time they spend walking slowly toward each other, he can't hurry up and spit out what he was trying to say in the time Superman takes to say that. He could have said, If I don't kill you, Lex will murder my mom. Same number of words. Fewer number of syllables. He wouldn't have said Martha, so it wouldn't have resonated on that deep personal level, but it might have gotten him talking. Superman mentioning Lex should give Batman pause, because that's who he stole the kryptonite from. And as far as Batman knows, Superman and Lex have absolutely nothing to do with each other, so it would be very strange for him to make up a story involving Lex. And why would Superman even need to make up a story? Batman is the underdog here. He did say Lex already, and Batman didn't react, but the way he was cut off, I don't know if Batman even heard that. And sure, 1% chance and all that, Batman might be a bull seeing red and wouldn't hear anything Superman says. In his mind, Superman is a dangerous wild animal, not a person. Has to put him down. He's laser focused on putting him in the ground. Okay, once again, you've got kryptonite. Quit dragging this out and kill him already. Oh, and Superman busting up the bat signal doesn't mean anything anymore because this isn't about him trying to make Bruce hang up his cape. So I guess it's just another thing there because it seems provocative. This thing is made for preteens obsessed with Rob Liefeld comics in 1993. Somebody grab a time machine and take it back to the people who would most appreciate it. Superman also keeps doing more property damage for no reason. Why does he have to fly Batman into and then out of the building and land him on the bat signal? Is he trying to break every bone in the man's body to convince him to save his mom? Remember, if he goes to rescue her, Lex says she'll die. He told Lois he wanted to convince Batman to help him if he could. His best chance at saving Martha is Batman, and he's bashing him into concrete and metal and glass. Martha, who's on a ticking clock, by the way, and Superman seems to have totally forgotten that. So yeah, no reason to anything he's doing whatsoever past his quickly aborted attempt to actually talk to Batman. Batman finally hit Superman with a kryptonite bomb, which he could have done in the first place. Could have been what pops up instead of the sonar thing, could have been in the gun turrets, could have been in the smoke grenade, but he has to use the smoke grenade to distract Superman and give him enough time to pull out the gun that fires the kryptonite bomb on a guy who has x-ray vision. And even if Batman doesn't know about that power, Superman doesn't even use his x-ray vision. I don't understand anything about this fight, and we're not even inside the building yet. Superman is writhing in pain, hit by kryptonite for the first time, and not just a little piece, a bunch of it, swirling all around him in gaseous form. Batman has no idea how much it would take to kill him. He could die right now, and Batman seems to know somehow that he won't. Why is Batman so sadistic and savoring this so much? It's like he's got to smile and really enjoy this because that's what he looks like in Dark Knight Returns. Even as far gone as he is, even though this is more about his own sense of legacy than it is about saving the world, Bruce is not a sociopathic murderer. I didn't think he was. It's like he has to fully enjoy Superman's agony before he'll kill him. Just walk over there and stab him already. 
you know what, Batman? If you'd wanted it, he'd be dead already. And no, I don't secretly think he's too good to kill Superman and is hoping for some unforeseen way out, or he would have listened to Superman when he tried to explain things in the first place. Maybe some compelling reason might have been contrived to make Batman weaken Superman and then fight him on his level, but they don't have any history together. He just wants him dead. I guess he's dragging this out because he thinks it's the only important thing he'll ever do and he wants to live in the moment, but he's taking a ridiculously big risk just for that. He's cockier because he has kryptonite, but Superman could have crushed him several times before he finally used it. And then I gotta sit through more of this macho nonsense. You're not brave. Men are brave. I get why Batman says that. He's saying the only special thing about Superman is his powers. And if you take that away, he's nothing. But if he has to have dialogue here, how about something substantial? Something about how he just does whatever he wants because he thinks he's better than regular people. How he doesn't belong here. And Batman's not going to let him act as if he owns the world just because he can. Something about Metropolis and the people Batman lost there. Superman conveniently winds up on top of a skylight, so Batman can pounce on him and bash him through the glass and into the building, because that's where he slammed his kryptonite spear into the floor. And then he punches him a bunch of times and throws him against walls. It's weird he didn't try to set this up so he could just kill Superman outside. Uh, this seems unnecessarily elaborate. I am genuinely shocked Snyder doesn't have Batman lure Superman to Crime Alley, where his parents were killed, like he does in The Dark Knight Returns. And I actually think that would be a better setting. On the nose, sure, but that's just par for the course with this movie. If there's any significance to this building at all, it's lost on me. Is it an old police headquarters, and that's why the bat signal is there? I don't know. The movie doesn't tell me. Snyder probably explained it in an interview somewhere, like he did everything else, because you have to care enough to read everything he's ever said about this movie to know the background of anything. And you know what? I don't even care enough to look it up. It should have been in the freaking movie. Crime Alley is a better setting for three reasons. A, that's where Bruce lost his mother, and her name is what makes him stop trying to murder Superman. B, the movie opens with the memory-slash-dream sequence in Crime Alley, setting up the idea of the beautiful lie. Bruce thinks the bats lifting him to the light is a lie, Batman being the persona he creates because of the death of his parents. Then he thinks the idea of the Superman here to save us is a lie, and he'll come to discover that the real lie is himself, still playing hero, when he's becoming the dark thing he's afraid Superman could be. And C, Batman is, in a roundabout way, becoming Joe Chill himself. He isn't killing Superman's mother, but if she dies, this night will be, for Superman, what the night in Crime Alley was for him, assuming Superman lives. Instead, it ends up just looking like that Morpheus-Smith fight in the middle of the Matrix. It's weird just how similar this setting is. They throw each other into walls some more, and then the kryptonite wears off. That was fast. See, that's why you should have stabbed him with kryptonite in the first place, Batman. Batman realizes it after he punches Superman in the face several times, and then that stops being effective. So if Superman can just stand there and that doesn't hurt, why not just let Batman keep doing whatever he wants and start... Yeah, I'm a broken record. Freaking talking! Then Batman puts his hand up. He's either out of tricks right now or he's bluffing. But Superman just grabs him again and flies him through the floor below him. And now it's his turn to beat the ever-loving Batusi out of Batman. But Batman manages to hit him with one more kryptonite smoke bomb after a pummeling and after getting his helmet busted on one side. 
I might be reaching here, but maybe that's supposed to represent his duality, that he's trying to be all Batman, or the monster he's letting Batman become, but there's still a vulnerable human man in there, foreshadowing his sympathy when the Martha reveal happens. It's probably a total coincidence and doesn't mean anything at all. But I don't know why I'm looking for anything meaningful in this scene. The next thing Batman does is hit Superman with a sink. Like they're in the spirit. A movie that I dare say actually makes more sense than this. Then Batman throws Superman down to the bottom floor of the building. He ties a line to his foot and drags him to his kill zone, spinning him all over the room before he stabs him with the kryptonite spear finally, and he speechifies about how Superman's parents probably taught him he means something, while Batman's parents' murder taught him the world only makes sense if you force it to. And God, I'm starting to think he's right. As I discussed in part one, that's his whole motivation. He needs a world where he feels like he has some semblance of control. He's taking a sweet time, considering he just saw the last bit of kryptonite he hit Superman with wear off fairly quickly. So Batman says Superman isn't a man. He's made him a non-person in his mind, which makes it easier to do this to him. But he just acknowledged Superman has parents, and that they must have raised him to be some kind of symbol. We're about to finally get the infamous Martha Lang, and the whole reason that's supposed to snap Batman out of his rage and show him the light is to humanize Superman for him because he has a mother, just like Batman does. And that means they're not so different. But also, because her death might impact Superman, just like his mother's death impacted him. Which is kind of a moot point if he kills him, but I think that's the idea here. And Batman knows how close to the edge of darkness he's always walked. But, he just talked about Superman's parents. Um, what? The way this resolves is one of the most baffling and asinine things in a superhero movie. I can't tell you how to completely fix it. You can make anything work, you just have to make it work. I say that all the time. But I'm generally referring to basic premises, not contrived story points designed to flick a switch and make our protagonists who wanted to kill each other five minutes ago instantly friends, and built on a whole bunch of conveniences and contrivances in the first place. So no. I don't think Superman says Martha, they stop fighting, then they team up and have no issues with each other anymore, can work. Because it doesn't come from a character-driven place. Because it's out of character. Because, like the Zod kill, it's about a big dramatic moment outside of any real story context. But I do think it could be made better. For starters, you have Batman be the monosyllabic character for a change. It's actually a pretty traditional thing for Batman. While he's fighting Superman, he ignores everything Superman is saying, and he never says anything. That way he's not talking about Superman's parents for two minutes before it's a revelation that Superman has parents. Just before he tries to stab Superman, Batman says, You were never a god. You were never even a man. Again, right after he acknowledged the man has parents. And that's such a curious line to me, because I think the movie itself is in an absolute crisis about whether Superman is a god or a man. More on that when we get to the end. I almost don't need to describe the rest of this scene. I've been discussing it the whole review, and even if you haven't seen the movie, you probably know what happens. It's the scene that will most live on in infamy in superhero movies. I bet Deadpool has fewer memes. But for the sake of context, Superman says, You're letting him kill Martha. He could have said this 150 times from the roof to here, but now that Batman scratched up his face and is about to execute him, now he gets a line. 
put yourself in Cavill's shoes. Imagine you're playing one of the titular roles in this movie, and the whole reason your character is hated by the public and is almost skewered by Batman is because you don't get any dialogue. And even though he finally gets to talk again, it's cryptic for no reason. He sounds like Flash coming through the portal. Fear him! Find him! Lois is the key! Save Martha! This is some of the most unnatural, forced writing I've ever seen, and I felt like I did during the Nightmare Batman sequence in the theater. I couldn't believe it was happening, and I started to wonder if I was even conscious. Is Superman supposed to be delirious and he's not thinking straight? That's the only possible explanation. I get that he's being choked to death, but if I'm desperate to save my mom, I'd say those lines like this. Find Lex and save my mom. Oh, but if he just says my mom, that's not significant to Batman and he might not pay any attention. Right, but why would he think Martha would mean anything to Batman? And who calls their parents by their first names, especially anyone brought up on a farm in the Midwest? He says it because the scene needs him to say it. And it's supposed to be clever and impressive because we've seen or heard Martha's name like two dozen times through the movie, so it's supposed to be good setup and payoff. I can't say it's not set up, but it's not good. It's completely ham-fisted. We see the death of the Waynes again, cutting back and forth between close-ups of Batman's face as he relives it, and we see Martha's name on the tombstone and hear Thomas Wayne say her name in slow motion again, just in case we didn't pick up on that before. I mean, maybe you didn't. The movie is like sitting through an entire season of television, but I think the audience can put it together pretty quickly. I don't mind flashing back a little to the murders, because Batman doesn't talk about what's going through his head here, but I almost think it would be more effective if this was the first time we saw those flashbacks. We do need some of that to appreciate the idea of his remembering why he became Batman in the first place. And even then, this is so weird and distracting, it's easy not to get what it's saying beyond, your mom's name is my mom's name, so I guess we're not so different after all. He's not on the verge of turning Superman into the evil version from the future, but he might become something like that himself. I can't be sure what Batman's logic is here entirely, but the important thing is he snapped out of his murderous rage because the name Martha humanizes Superman for him, and in whatever way makes him realize he's about to have to relive the night his parents died again. So here's how I would improve on this, or at least make Superman saying Martha less contrived than out of nowhere. When Clark is investigating Batman, he could stumble upon his secret, or maybe use his x-ray vision to see through Batman's mask when they meet for the first time. Because why wouldn't you? He looks into the murder of Bruce's parents, realizes his mom's name is Martha too, finds the coincidence interesting, and files it away. Then, in the moment, after he's exhausted every other avenue trying to get through to Batman, it occurs to him he might respond to his mother's name. That only remotely works if Superman knows that Bruce's mother's name is Martha, and even still it can't play like a magic word that ends a spell. This is like an old Disney movie. It doesn't have to play this melodramatically. Batman doesn't have to scream, Why did you say that name? But he could put his pretentious Jesus allegory spear down and ask the question. Superman would actually have an answer, and then a natural conversation could lead to his saying, Martha won't die tonight. And Bruce should still be skeptical of Superman. Should maybe say something like, We still have a lot to talk about. But he's not the immediate threat now, and through an uneasy alliance, he could somehow be won over on Superman, who would, of course, have to act at least 20% more like any other screen Superman to make all this work. 
Heck, I'd take Tom Welling from Smallville right now. Like I said, it's still not great, but I think it could be handled smarter and certainly less embarrassing. And that's just one of, I'm sure, many different ways to do that. Lois runs in just in the nick of time and tells Batman that Martha is Superman's mother's name, since he's both dying and seems to have reached his dialogue quota. This might seem like a minor gripe, considering the situation, but I think it's odd she's yelling Clark as she runs into the room. I can kind of see revealing Superman's identity once she gets to Batman in desperation. She'd be panicked, sure, but she's here to try to save Superman, either to keep him from getting killed or to prevent him from making a horrible mistake. And the first thing she does is scream his real name? Martha is a life-altering revelation for Batman, and he throws the spear away. I wonder if that would have happened with Pontius Pilate if it turned out that guy's mom was also named Mary. It plays not like a natural reaction, but like an actor hitting his mark. Affleck is doing the best he can with this, but there's no making the most hackneyed scene in superhero movie history believable. Meanwhile, the clock next to Martha is at 10 minutes to force some tension for the audience, even though Superman was taking his sweet time fighting Batman, and it's easy to forget there is a ticking clock. Also, I don't see how all that could have possibly taken 50 minutes. Superman explains Lex's plot to Batman, at least the part where he wanted Superman to kill Batman for him. No one can explain Lex's plot. The scout ship is drawing power from the city, so Batman says Superman needs to be there. Suddenly, Bruce trusts Superman enough not to just work with him, but to go into a populated area where he might have to use his powers around civilians again. His recklessness in such a situation is what turned Batman on him in the first place. And now they're both totally different characters. Superman understandably wants to save his mother, but Batman promises him she won't die if he lets him go save her. Doomsday seems shoved in here, weirdly not to give Superman something to do, but Batman? Saving Martha is something he can do. But if all that was left was rescuing Martha, that's not a two-man job. So now we're setting up the typical metropolitan big monster fight, and that might have worked were it seeded better. If Doomsday didn't feel like a weird afterthought, and if I understood at all how and why Luther created it. And maybe if that was the thing that brought Batman and Superman together instead of the sappy Martha moment. It could work if Lex didn't try to manipulate them into a brawl, but rather they did that of their own accord. And Lex's plan all along was Doomsday. And then it blows up in Lex's face because he accidentally gives Superman and Batman the threat they need to come together and form a bond over. When Batman leaves and gets in his jet, Alfred conveniently already knows where KG Beast is holding Martha because he was listening in and pinpointed KG Beast's phone? I don't know how he did that. Never mind. Doesn't matter. He just needs to get there in 10 minutes somehow. Still makes more sense than 75% of what happens in this. We're now in a completely different movie. We're not questioning whether the powerful can be altruistic anymore, not exploring whether the good can stay that way in a cynical world, none of that stuff. And it's not like we're going to beat a big monster and then all those pesky questions are still going to be addressed. No, we solved it with Martha. It's now morphed into a standard, boring superhero movie, but presented with the same self-importance it had all along. The movie didn't know it was an absurd, grimdark melodrama before, and it doesn't know it's transformed into a sappy melodrama now. Batman, a character usually portrayed as stealthy and so good at sticking to the shadows he has urban legend status, can't go into any situation in this movie without guns blazing. Christopher Nolan said in an interview once about Batman Begins that it's difficult making an action movie about a hero who doesn't carry guns. Snyder's solution is the same as Burton's. 
Just give them guns. Batman flies his plane to the warehouse and starts firing on guards stationed outside just to create an exciting firefight. Why make his presence known like that? He's let KG Beast know he's trying to get inside, but why not drop down from the plane somewhere away from the warehouse so no one sees you coming? The only reason this Batman hasn't been killed in 20 years is because his name's in the title. I do like the way Batman takes out a room full of guys. He has a gadget that sticks a tiny explosive to all their guns and knocks a bunch of them to the ground at once. That's cool, and I wish I'd had that during those Predator missions in the Arkham games I suck at so much, but they wouldn't all be collected together like that with guns trained on him in the first place if he hadn't announced his presence. Batman has never moved this fast and gracefully in a movie before, so that's a treat, and it's too bad there's not more of it in the movie. If the writing was smarter, it could do something with some of the realism of this fight. It's comic book action, to be sure, but Batman doesn't manage to get through this without people getting mortally wounded. Batman's stories are so often about how he doesn't kill, because he'd go over a line into madness if he did, and he just conveniently never gets anyone killed in these highly dangerous and unpredictable situations. There's no way no one would ever die in a fight with Batman. Here, people get shot and get caught in grenade explosions. Batman throws a wooden crate at a man who hits his head on a wall and bleeds out the back of his head. But that doesn't happen because those are the consequences to Batman's actions, and not because it's going to explore the implications of that, but because, everybody, say it with me, Snyder thinks it looks cool. Batman is no less brutal here than he was before he fought Superman. You might be thinking, but Cap, that contradicts your claim that Batman and Superman are totally different characters now. That it's a straight-up classic superhero film at the end, when it wanted to be a gritty deconstruction of that earlier. I stand by that. Again, these action scenes have nothing to do with characters' motivations or the themes of the narrative. Batman kills and he gets people killed, and no one notices because it has no impact on the story. He's here to get Martha rescued. Everything that happens in between is a violent music video, which is what Snyder should be making, at least if he wants any input on the story. And I'm not saying he should suddenly be less excessive in his brutality just because Superman said Martha. He could have a dramatic change in attitude and method if I bought Superman actually shows him the light, but I don't. But by the end, Batman has changed. He doesn't brand Lex, and he's ready to build a Justice League, rather than terrorizing criminals or trying to bring down gods. That doesn't happen because of anything after this scene. So I can only surmise, and Snyder as much as confirms this in his commentary, that the movie thinks he's already that guy here, which means I have to ignore all the death. And in that commentary, Snyder also snidely says everyone makes it out alive here just like he did with the Batmobile sequence. Stop looking for consistency. Watching Batman murder people is fun. And never mind whether it gels with the narrative, why does this need to be so violent? It's the dictionary definition of gratuitous. Batman takes a point-blank range handgun blast to the side of his head and barely flinches, which seems ridiculous. If the cowl is that durable and that protective, why did he need a big metal helmet on his robot suit? And why isn't the front of it as durable? He gets kicked in the face and it slows him down more than the bullet did. And then he gets stabbed in the shoulder, and I'm wondering why that's not made of the same material the helmet is. Maybe because of flexibility, I don't know and I doubt if that much thought was even given to it. At least this action is better shot than a lot of the rest of it, though. Snyder actually backs the camera off and lets us see what's happening, which is also true of the BVS fight, especially once we're inside the building, but it's not true of a lot of the Doomsday stuff. 
When Batman gets into the room with KG Beast and Martha, the Russian tries to use Martha as leverage so Batman won't kill him. He says, I'll kill her. And Batman says, I believe you. So he shoots the tank on the Russian's back, and in a few seconds, it explodes. Which gave KG Beast plenty of time to shoot Martha like he says he will. Considering how ruthless he's been the whole movie, he got prisoners to murder each other and pushed a woman in front of a train. I don't know why he didn't. Batman takes a ridiculous gamble here, so this unmemorable henchman can go out in spectacular fashion. That's not resourcefulness. That's what Batman Forever's Two-Face called blind, stupid, simple, doodah, clueless luck. As slow on the draw as KG Beast is, Superman could have saved his mother no problem. Batman's also lucky he was able to jump on Martha and protect her with his cape in time. Batman and Martha have a playful exchange. Batman says, I'm a friend of your son's, and she says, I figured the cape. In the theater, I'm thinking, wait a minute, this kind of thing wasn't allowed earlier in the film. Unless you were Alfred or Perry, you didn't get to be quippy and fun. Oh, but now it's a fun action-adventure film, where Batman murders a man with a wooden box and sets another one on fire. Fun for the whole family. I wonder if she would have assumed they were friends 10 minutes ago when they were throwing each other through concrete. And you're telling me Martha has never heard of Batman and hasn't seen the news about how he's been brutalizing criminals? Oh, but I guess in this world, a vigilante going on a rampage is only local news. We cut back to Lois in the abandoned building, who throws the kryptonite spear into a pool of water. She just spent the whole movie trying to analyze a bullet. She doesn't want to get maybe a sliver of this thing looked at and find out what it is. The only thing she and Superman have ever encountered that can harm him? Seems like useful information to have. Superman shows up at the Kryptonian ship at the exact moment Lex's kitchen timer goes off. At least it's consistent with all this convenient timing. And Lex starts rambling again, making about as much sense as he ever has. He says Superman is one bat head short, but he also says he gave Batman a chance to kill Superman and that he was not strong enough. Lex seems disappointed that Batman didn't win the fight, but I thought the point was to make Superman compromise his altruism. Guess not. See, suddenly it doesn't feel like this was about anything interesting. Lex says, I don't hate the sinner, just the sin, and yours is existing. So was it ever about proving anything to the public, or was it always just about killing a Superman? An elaborate scheme is only justified if he's trying to prove a point. This elaborate scheme doesn't make sense regardless, but if Lex's reasons for doing it were at least consistent, that would be something. Now it watches like he simply wanted Batman to kill Superman, even though he had the kryptonite himself earlier in the movie, and Doomsday is just a fallback plan. Again, unleashing it seconds after the fight is preposterous, because it seems like he was going to do that whether Superman won or lost, but why have a big monster attack right after a scheme to make everyone hate Superman even more? They wouldn't even have time to process the Batman fight before they're screaming in terror from a rampaging creature. It's like trying to publish a story you need people at a Senate hearing to read right as they're walking into the Senate hearing. Unless Lex is charging up Doomsday with the city's power up until the timer goes off, so he can sick it on Superman if he needs to, but he's going to shut it down if Superman actually does kill Batman? Maybe that was the plan. If so, was he just going to keep using Martha as leverage long enough to further ruin Superman's reputation and then send Doomsday after him? And it's clear where the lightning is coming from. You don't think anybody's going to investigate that? It's like, now that we're on to the next part, we're supposed to forget everything that led us here. Not a great filmmaking strategy anytime after the advent of home video. 
And now we're in the disaster film stretch of the movie, where our civilian characters look at TV screens dramatically as they contemplate their own mortality. The movie didn't really have sequelitis until this moment. Now it kind of feels like the climax of Man of Steel all over again, in a movie that feels like it's already past its climax. Remember how Man of Steel opens with a 15-minute sequence that feels like the end of a Krypton movie? This simultaneously feels like it's repeating the end of the last movie, and like it's jumped to the end of its own sequel. As Doomsday is about to come out of his maturation chamber, there's this weird alien squid-looking thing swimming in the water beneath him. What is that? Is that a Kryptonian animal? Did Earth squids get in the ship somehow? In the middle of the city? I have never noticed that before. What the heck is that? Lex calls the monster an ancient Kryptonian deformity and reveals to Superman that he used his blood to create it, but not that he also used Zod. Later on, he'll use Kryptonite to kill it, so maybe after it uses heat vision, Superman puts two and two together, but I'm not sure he ever realizes that which totally defeats the only interesting thematic purpose there might have been for having Superman fight a monstrous version of Zod. I thought this was a potentially great idea when I saw it in the trailers. It looked like the movie would be about the fallout of what happened with Zod. The collateral damage which puts him in Batman's crosshairs, yes, but also the way he killed Zod. If people knew about that, it might make a lot of them scared of Superman. If he could kill one of his own with his bare hands, what else was he capable of if he didn't have our best interests at heart? I think it's weird that this movie never talks about that. A doomsday created from Zod's corpse would be the personification of the consequences of those actions. He'd have to beat a bigger, harder-to-kill Zod. A make-my-monster-grow Zod. More mindful of the people on the ground this time to prove his heart is in the right place. It's an odd idea, but there might have been something there. Instead, Superman never has to face those consequences directly, and even though his recklessness is sort of addressed at the beginning, it's with a character who's ultimately supposed to be in the wrong, in Batman. And Superman is still doing that stuff, there just aren't any people around. Cezanne's body is just raw material lying around for Lex to use, and it's not about anything at all, except an excuse to get popular iconography in the movie. And I don't know what the point of that is, because this thing doesn't look at all like Doomsday, and I already sat through a fight with that ugly abomination in Incredible Hulk. Concept designer Jared Marins's original sculpt actually looked a lot closer to the comic book Doomsday. It was at least kind of recognizable, but naturally, it had to be altered to be as generic and bland as possible. What was Lex's plan if he actually succeeded in killing Superman with Doomsday? Surely he can't know Doomsday and Superman will kill each other at the same time, and he has absolutely no control over it, as evidenced by the fact that Superman has to save him when Doomsday tries to pound him, in his first action after being born. I guess to Lex, an evil rampaging god is better than one people think is good. At least there's no paradox there. Oh, and we get another forced hero or villain name in dialogue when Lex calls the monster Your Doomsday. I always appreciated that the comics killed Superman during the day if the monster was going to be called that. I completely forgot about this one when I wrote about this trope in my Contrived Moments in Superhero Movies podcast. In its defense, though, the name is pretty forced in the comics, too. Then, the supremely long Doomsday fight. Doomsday slams Superman into a statue, foreshadowing his death. Superman has, I guess, chosen to be their monument. Like Martha said earlier, and now his monument is literally in pieces. I never liked the idea of that statue, because even after all the wonderful things he does for the world in the comics, Superman never gets that until he dies. 
Here, the city builds it for him after he saves the world the first time, under confusing circumstances. People don't immediately believe in Superman and Man of Steel because they know he's been among them all this time and he never said anything. And I think it would be a really polarizing decision to erect the statue to him. But apparently not, because nearly everyone loves him at the start of this film. And I especially don't like that because we're doing Death of Superman in this movie. Diana is in a commercial plane now, about to take off to go to Gotham and sees Doomsday on the news. Bruce's email earlier was a device to get her on the way so it wouldn't seem out of nowhere when she shows up. But her scenes are so few and far between, it still feels that way. It almost would have been better if she hadn't been in the movie at all until now. At least if this movie has to end in a monster fight. If she's just watching the news at home and decides to finally come out of hiding. She fights with Batman and Superman, and at the end of the movie, someone stops and interviews her. Who are you? Where did you come from? She says, like Superman, I've been among you for years, but now seemed like the right time to reveal myself. Call me Wonder Woman. And then her origin film explains why she's already off the mascara. Something like that would seem less contrived, and it would be a way to start to open the world up for Justice League without introducing a bunch of characters that don't factor into the story. And the rest of her appearances in this movie don't either. If DC had played its cards right, it could have been a huge surprise, and the novelty of that would have helped it feel less out of left field. We all went into this movie wondering what her role would even be. Wouldn't it have been amazing if her appearance was kept a secret before she shows up here? As long as she's not a deus ex machina and Batman and Superman still have plenty to do, I think it could have been a neat coup and would have really set DC apart from Marvel in its world building. Now, of course, I'd question why she didn't come out of hiding to help stop the world engine, which was a more immediate threat to the entire world because it was terraforming it, but I question that here anyway. Also, here's an obnoxiously tiny nitpick, but I find it amusing. We hear Anderson Cooper's voice on the television on the plane monitors, but Diana isn't wearing headphones, so she can't possibly hear him. This thing is only vaguely doomsday. He jumps really high and it's hard to kill, and that's where the similarities end. It can take whatever energy is thrown at it and repel it back out, so it ends up looking like a huge electricity monster. Now I'm getting flashbacks to Abomination and Electro simultaneously. In the comics, Doomsday is an alien experiment designed to be unkillable by learning to adapt to everything that can kill it. It keeps coming back to life, immune to whatever took it out last time. This has nothing to do with that unless he was supposed to return in a later movie. I think Doomsday would have been the perfect threat to bring together the Justice League in the next film, especially if Snyder wanted to adapt Death of Superman somewhere. It's weird to form the team around Superman's death, certainly, but better that than Batman putting it together after Superman dies. And if it was already buried underground for whatever reason, Doomsday could have been a simple, nigh-impossible challenge instead of the convoluted mother box stuff probably shouldn't be your only villain, but I think that would have been the place for it. Maybe even introduce Doomsday at the end of this in a cliffhanger. Meanwhile, Diana leaves the plane and I guess flies as Wonder Woman to Gotham? Near as I can figure. I'm not sure if the movie knows she has that power yet, but if it counts, retroactively, she can do that by 1984, according to the Wonder Woman sequel. A stewardess chases after her, calling her by name. She's not a famous person. She works at a museum. Why does that woman know Diana's name? Superman picks up Doomsday and flies him out into space, finally getting a threat away from population centers. It's about time. 
The president tells Swanwick to nuke both Superman and Doomsday because they're high enough it won't kill anyone besides them, and that's typical in a movie like this. The government always jumps to nukes, but at least they're not insane, ready to kill a million to save billions. I kind of expected a Doctor Strangelove situation. The president is willing to sacrifice Superman, but that's a more understandable risk, especially since they can't know if a nuclear weapon will actually kill a Kryptonian, even though they assume it will. And to be fair, it nearly does, but considering all the people who talk about Superman like he's a celestial being, it's kind of odd. Superman keeps flying Doomsday higher into space until the nuclear missile comes at them and he puts Doomsday in front of him so the monster will take the brunt of the explosion. Doomsday comes back down and impacts in an uninhabited area. That's convenient, but Superman doesn't. I'm wondering what Kryptonian powers Doomsday has besides heat vision. Or I guess heat face beams, it comes out of his mouth too. Why can't Doomsday fly? And come to think of it, couldn't Superman fly Doomsday up a little faster so they'd be out of the Earth's gravitational pull and wouldn't risk Doomsday landing in a populated area? And he couldn't get out of the way of the impact when it hits Doomsday? I mean, he does have super speed, and if Doomsday is pulled down by gravity, why isn't Superman? I guess just so we can have a provocative image of him looking like a zombie and then restored by sunlight. So now, Doomsday is stronger than ever, and he sheds his skin to reveal a bunch of protruding bones, as a reveal for the fans. He still looks terrible, and it's little consolation because he's still a completely different thing. Now he's shooting out these massive shockwaves because of the missile, but there's no danger of nuclear fallout, I guess. That's lucky, and as always, if the movie was compelling, I wouldn't care so much about what he looks like. Doomsday was, after all, a massive plot device in the comics anyway. And the only reason I care is nostalgia, but the whole narrative is a baffling mess. Would have been nice to at least have that. Doomsday shoots heat vision at Batman, only just now revealing he can do that so Batman can make the assumption kryptonite can kill it. Even when it gets to the simplest, most plot-driven, big action ending, it's still plotted scene to scene. It's impressive how poorly constructed this still is. And that's not just a guess on Batman's part. He says only kryptonian weapons can kill it. He can't possibly know that. By that logic, why not have Superman assume the same thing when Lex calls it a Kryptonian deformity? Why doesn't Superman go, hey, that green stuff that hurt me should kill it? It's Kryptonian. When Batman tells Alfred he's going back for the spear, Alfred does say it would work in theory. Again, always the voice of non-impulsiveness. But I'm still questioning how this Batman had any success as a vigilante the way he operates. Batman lures Doomsday toward his Kill Superman building, gets shot down by Doomsday's heat vision, and then gets saved by Wonder Woman in a pretty exciting reveal. We just saw Superman getting restored by sunlight, and the first thing he does is light his eyes red like he's about to shoot heat vision for no reason. I'm resisting the urge to start calling Snyder Superman Heat Vision Man. So we expect Superman to be the one blocking Doomsday's eye beams, but it's Wonder Woman with her gauntlets, and the over-the-top junkie XL theme plays, which doesn't feel out of place anymore because the movie is so off the rails at this point. When Superman shows back up, he throws Doomsday into a power plant and causes a huge explosion. Yeah, nobody's around to get killed, but really? The first thing he has to do when he comes back is more property damage? I mean, why? Even if he doesn't realize everything that's been thrown at it just makes it stronger. A nuke didn't kill the monster, so did he really think that might blow Doomsday up, or can Superman just not control the impulse to smash into buildings? 
Then we see Lois watching from outside the murder Superman convention hall, and I guess because she sees Doomsday using heat vision, she also assumes Kryptonite can kill him. She doesn't actually know what Kryptonite is, but I suppose it's a fair deduction that the spear is deadly to Kryptonians and this monster could have the same weakness. It could be made clearer that she saw Doomsday use that ability, though. Coverage and reactions are a challenge for Snyder. Superman tells Wonder Woman that Doomsday is from his world, and I like her response. I killed things from other worlds before. That's the kind of subtle drawing back of the curtain the movie should be doing in building a shared universe. It makes it feel like a lived-in world with a lot of comic booky history and gets my imagination going. That vague line is ten times more interesting to me than the concrete Justice League setup that keeps intruding on the story. That leads to one of the most awkward moments of the movie, though, partly because Superman and Batman seem like pals now, and partly because it makes no sense. It was one of the big trailer lines. Superman says, is she with you? And Batman responds with, I thought she was with you. But Batman knows who she is. And not just because he met her earlier, but he's seen a picture of her wearing that costume. So it's not like it's a disguise that's fooling him. If he thought she was with Superman, why wasn't he super suspicious of her when he thought Superman was the enemy way back, you know, like 20 minutes ago? Then, Doomsday creates another massive shockwave that looks like it destroys the whole world. I know it's just this conveniently abandoned area outside of Metropolis, but it looks like Judgment Day from The Terminator. That creates a life-threatening situation for Lois, who winds up underwater with the kryptonite spear trapped under rubble. There might be some tension in this scene if Superman couldn't hear her all the way in Africa at the beginning. Some of this action is shot too close, but a lot of it is exciting and has a stylized modern comic flair that's been missing in superhero movies. It's ironic that a movie that wants so badly to be taken seriously and realistic is so ultra-heightened, and that that's the thing I most love about it. And even though we still have a pretty bleak color palette, I like that Superman's colors are allowed to pop a bit, especially the red in the cape during this epic throwdown with Doomsday. It's high-flying, fast-paced, roller coaster action, once it really gets going. Once again, events can't possibly be in sequence, because if Lois has been underwater since the last time we saw her, she'd already be dead. Superman and Doomsday shoot more heat beams at each other. Do other things, Superman! Try ice! What are you, bubbles from the Powerpuff Girls? You just don't realize you could do that yet? And again, why does heat vision also come out of Doomsday's mouth at the same time? In this scene, it looks like his whole head is a laser cannon. He looks like he should have no face when he stops doing that. Superman flies up into the air, and then he hears Lois banging against the rubble as she's trying to get out of her watery tomb. Yeah, there's nobody else around, but that's not even her voice. He can hear isolated banging from underwater just because it's Lois. Again, what are the limits of his powers, and would he have heard that if anyone else was doing it? At least it's in a building that's close and not on another continent. Superman saves her and then swims down to get the spear. I don't know why he doesn't go there in the first place once he knows he probably needs kryptonite if he's going to take the risk to his own health to try to fly it back to Doomsday anyway. He and the other heroes are making zero headway in stopping the monster. Even weirder is that Batman doesn't go back for the spear. He knows where it is, he told Wonder Woman that's what they need, but he's fighting the monster without it and he's the least effective of the three since he has no powers. Is he waiting for Lois to bring it to him? Does he even know what she's doing? We cut back to the best looking Batman stuff in the movie now. We get to see him grapple away from Doomsday, Arkham style, and best of all, he's not leaving any thugs in puddles of blood. 
And now, the moment I call the most contrived in superhero movie history. Superman looks out at Batman and Wonder Woman fighting Doomsday, and decides he has to fly the kryptonite spear to Doomsday to stab him with it, which might kill him on the way there. He barely got out of the water with it, and then only with Lois's help. Superman acts like there's more urgency here than there is, because while they're not doing much to slow Doomsday down, he's not running off to population centers, and they're holding their own against him. And Superman has fought with Wonder Woman here long enough to know she's nearly on his level power-wise, and she's clearly more experienced. She can go whole minutes without getting buildings blown up. Remember, the sacrifice here is not only unnecessary, it also creates a massive liability. If Superman can't make it to Doomsday, he might drop the spear somewhere and the others could have a hard time finding it. If they're wrong about the kryptonite and it doesn't kill Doomsday, they're down their most powerful man. It's actually irresponsible for Superman to handle it this way, and that's why it's hard for me not to look at this as taking the easy way out, almost like he wants to die. It's also one of the many reasons it's hard for me to feel the way the movie wants me to about his death. I know the movie doesn't think it's suicide. Like with everything else, Superman's motivation here is just an excuse to make a dramatic moment happen it doesn't know how to earn. But looking at all the events of the movie, Superman's passivity, his refusal to communicate, his possibly unhealthy obsession with Lois, the premonition of his going evil because Lois dies in the future, and his tendency to give up when things get hard, he looks like a tired man who doesn't know how to live in a confusing and cruel world. Certainly not how to connect with and gain the trust of people. And making the sacrifice play lets him be the hero without dealing with repercussions anymore, which he's never really done in the first place. If Superman wanted to live, there's a really easy way to do that. Use your super speed to go to Wonder Woman. You say, there's a glowing green spear that can probably kill the monster. It also can kill me, so I can't carry it. Will you go like a half mile, quarter mile over there in that direction and get it out of that dilapidated building for me? Then bring it back. Batman and I will distract it for you. Then you jump really high, which I've seen you do, and go stab it for me. Nobody has to die. And that's not a hindsight sort of suggestion, like, I've had time to process all this, so of course I came up with it. It's a much more natural plan in the moment based on everything you know with the best chance of success. Oh, but Superman's Jesus, so he has to die. That allegory for Man of Steel is laid on just as thick here at the end. I'm shocked he doesn't have dinner with 12 men at a long table. Although I guess that would require him to be sociable and have conversations. Just like with the tornado in the next snapping in Man of Steel, there have to be less contrived ways to get Superman into this situation. So even if it seemed a little tacked on to kill him in this movie, I could buy he feels like this is the only way to save the world. Once again, he tells Lois she is his world, which just isn't as romantic as the movie thinks it is for all the reasons I've already discussed. This is the problem with the action scenes having to progress the narrative by necessity. Snyder does not know how to do that. He just wants the visual of Superman stabbing Doomsday and dying. The other two have their obligatory roles to make it look like this is the only way they can take Doomsday out. Wonder Woman holds him in place with her lasso, and Batman shoots him with a kryptonite bomb to weaken him. They haven't coordinated this together, they just do it. So when Batman and Wonder Woman do their thing, do they even see Superman coming with the spear? Or are they just hoping he's on his way and he has that? Like, why would Batman waste his last kryptonite weapon if he didn't know that? Even when Superman gets there, weakened by the spear, there are other ways to handle this. 
One woman could throw Superman her lasso. He could hold Doomsday down himself, and again, she could impale him with the spear. And Doomsday has been standing in one place making shockwaves like an endgame video game boss anyway, so I'm not even sure the lasso is necessary. In the theater, I got really emotional watching this scene. It was surreal because I wasn't feeling anything about this particular Superman. He never seemed like Superman to me, and whatever inspiration I thought he started to bring in Man of Steel had evaporated. And the situation itself wasn't compelling. Everything seemed really contrived to get us to Superman's death, even on that first viewing. But it was a thing I always wanted to see on the big screen, and it completely sideswiped me. Even knowing Doomsday was supposed to be in the movie, I never predicted he'd kill Superman in a pre-Justice League setup movie, because that's a crazy person thing to do. And it also teased me with what looked like a Superman death 10 minutes earlier when he's a floating corpse in space. I was taken completely by surprise. And then a wave of nostalgia swept over me, like a Doomsday shockwave. I was 10 years old again, reading Death of Superman, seeing the impossible happen on the page. I didn't truly care about Superman when I was a kid until he died, and the idea of an icon we need but take for granted no longer being with us fascinated me. That's why I cared. The world without Superman. I was always more of a Batman guy, but I realized Batman only works with the contrast of Superman, and then I got it. It was easy to feel that melancholy along with Lois Lane and everyone else who survived him because it was just a given it could never happen. Roger Stern's novelization was one of the most powerful reading experiences I had as a kid, and it was a massive influence on me forevermore. It gets super corny, and it's overwritten, it doesn't hold up as well as I wish it did, but it's a deep-rooted part of my chemical makeup. Tim Burton was supposed to direct an adaptation called Superman Lives in the mid-90s. I'd like to do an analysis of that script and talk about that great documentary, Superman Lives, What Happened, sometime down the line on this series. I was crushed when that movie fell through, and it's never had a good on-screen adaptation. I've talked about Superman Doomsday, the animated film, the first subject for review in the series twice now. I've been so desperate to see that handled well. And after this, it was done again in animation, in the two-part Death of Superman, Reign of the Superman, which finally adapts, albeit loosely, the whole saga, and I absolutely hated it. But in the moment, watching BVS for the first time, I could not be remotely objective. I lost all context for a few minutes and just let the imagery wash over me. Suddenly, finally, Doomsday kills Superman. Heroes mourn him, the world laments a world without him, and as embarrassed as I might be to admit it, as absurd as it all is once the novelty wears off, which it did, very quickly, I had tears streaming down my face the rest of the movie. My 10-year-old self was in heaven, and it's handled with a lot of gravitas and fanfare. I love the score when Superman stabs Doomsday with the spear. It's the best piece of new music in the movie. Loud, bombastic, sure, but warranted, if only the scene itself was earned in the larger narrative. It's equal parts tragic and triumphant, with a melody that's always stuck with me. It's really easy for me to watch just that moment and imagine a wonderful, inspiring Superman movie around it. And above everything else, in the hours and hours I've combed over this material with a toothbrush now, it's the biggest reason the movie is such a disappointment for me. I want that to work so badly, and it just doesn't. Like, if Bane came out of nowhere at the end of a Batman movie where he'd been fighting the Penguin the whole time and broke his back in spectacular fashion, but it made no sense and felt hitched to the back of a truck that couldn't support its weight. 
Once I'm able to get past 10-year-old Captain Logan and put my analytical hat back on, I see Superman's death as a bizarre choice that happens for, I think, a few reasons. A, the movie is jumping the gun and wants to pay off all that Jesus imagery instead of waiting for the third film, or continue on with that imagery into the resurrection. Superman dies, his hands out in a crucifix position, even though he's just sprawled out on Doomsday's giant hand and not on a cross. I mean, the Smallville pilot was even more on the nose with its crucifixion image, stringing Clark up on an actual wooden stake, and it's somehow cleverer than this. You've got Batman and Wonder Woman bringing him down off Mount Calvary, basically, with conspicuous wooden crosses in the background. It's constantly overcompensating with the Judeo-Christian stuff, like constantly shouting he's Jesus makes up for any point where I'm questioning his heroism. You've got his burial, but a hint at resurrection, and of course, he'd come back to life in Justice League. B, even though Snyder swears in his commentary that Superman is supposed to be the optimistic symbol of hope the whole movie, he hasn't done a lot of actual heroic things, at least on screen, up to this point. Doing the ultimate sacrifice moment is an easy argument for, look, Superman put the world ahead of himself, he's a hero, when you don't actually know how to make him inspiring. C, it's an easy way to put the public back on his side. Conveniently, everyone forgets all about their suspicions and doubts because he saved the world again and he's dead. D, the film doesn't have to deal with any aftermath with Batman and Superman. If he's dead, there doesn't have to be a conversation about whether Batman still thinks there's a chance he could go evil, or just be his best friend now because they fought a monster together, which I would never buy. All those potentially interesting things the movie used to be about, it doesn't have to resolve at all. Ding dong, the monster's dead, now justice has dawned the end. And E, there was a huge unnerving surprise at the end of Man of Steel when Superman snapped Zod's neck and killed him. Snyder is all about the big end of the movie shock moment the same way Shyamalan is about the O. Henry plot twist. Well, how do you top that? Superman himself dies this time. And again, that could have been earned if it was the price he had to pay for his own mistakes. Not what I want in a Superman story, but looking at Man of Steel and BVS on their own terms, that's maybe a logical conclusion, at least to the story that's here, if not Snyder's own interpretation of it. So Superman's dead body is lying right next to his statue? That's laying things on even thicker. People erected monuments to God, and God is dead, he lived among us as a man, but try as he might, he also never really was one of us. He is a god, and he will return to show the world the way. The movie is also saying he was a man just like everyone else, too, so this is all just kind of pretentious and confused. The movie struggles with relative space. Didn't Batman lure Doomsday to this unpopulated island outside of Metropolis after Superman fought the monster in the middle of the city? And that's where they broke the statue? How did it wind up all the way over here? And how far away was Batman's kryptonite chamber of horrors from this spot? Could Lois have gotten here that fast on foot? Considering the death of Superman stuff is exploiting that material for no good reason anyway, I wouldn't have minded more blatant fan service with it. Usually that's not a priority for me, I just want it well integrated in a good story, but I'm looking for anything to grab onto here. Throw me a bone. Literally. Like I said, at least make Doomsday look like Doomsday. I appreciate Lois mourning over Superman's body, like at the end of Superman 75, but have Superman's cape get ripped off, recreate the cover of that issue. There is a poster of that for the Snyder Cut of Justice League. We are two weeks away from the release as of this recording, so I'm going to find out pretty soon if that's even in there. But if it is, it's retroactive. He still had his cape on at the end of this, so 
it's a little late to do that now. So Superman and Doomsday are both dead. The day is saved. Batman gets what he originally wanted, but now that he's had his light switch moment, he's devastated. There are several epilogues, two of which need the director to explain them because they're totally cryptic, but are made weirder and more stupid when I know what they're supposed to be. Lex is standing in front of a giant Steppenwolf in the Kryptonian ship, in a big pool of mud, and Steppenwolf is holding three mother boxes. I had no idea who that was until Justice League came out. In his lockdown commentary, Snyder says Lex is communing with Steppenwolf, and that that's a hologram of some kind. We'll get to why he's there in a minute, because the movie isn't finished topping itself in its insanity. But I don't know why Steppenwolf comes to Lex in the first place. Does it have something to do with Doomsday? Is it just because he's in the Kryptonian ship and Steppenwolf decides to communicate with that once Superman is dead? It's like, would he have talked to whoever was standing right there? I couldn't begin to tell you. Whatever Steppenwolf did to Lex seems to have driven him more nuts than he already was. He's maybe downloaded information into his head. Then, Lex is chained up in prison, presumably just for making Doomsday. I'm not sure how much of the frame-up job or the kryptonite theft can even be pinned on him. But he's considered too certifiable to even stand trial, so I guess it hardly matters. Lex gets his head shaved, because that's a Lex Luthor tradition. If he's got hair and no one knows he's evil, when he finally gets caught, he has to be bald. For no other reason than that's what Lex Luthor is supposed to look like. We even do that with the toupee at the end of Donner's Superman film. This exact same thing is done at the end of Season 3 Smallville with Lionel Luthor. I'm not even going to criticize that. It's such a standard thing with the character at this point. I gotta say, Eisenberg makes a pretty convincing bald Lex. Clark and Superman both have funerals, and I really like the comparison between them. Clark's the meager Midwest hometown service, and Superman's is the prestigious military service for an American hero. I don't think this Superman deserved that, but I like the image if only this guy was the character the movie pretends he was. The reception in Kansas is as authentic as can be. Look at all the disgusting-looking casseroles on the table! I like that the actor who played Pete Ross in Man of Steel was brought back in this scene, talking to Perry White. If you blink, you miss him in the first movie, but it's a good bit of continuity if you remember that's who that's supposed to be. Surreal that he's still around, but we've already killed off Jimmy Olsen, though. When Superman comes back from the dead, that guy should get a signal watch. At the Kent farm, we find out that Clark was about to propose to Lois and had her engagement ring sent to the farmhouse to surprise her. That's strange. So was he going to invite her to the farm or fly her there and then take the ring from his mother and give it to her? Why couldn't he just hang on to it? Why would you do that unless you knew you were going to die and you wanted this scene to happen? There's so much of these awkward decisions in this movie. Characters just do stuff to get images in scenes. I can contrive a way more plausible way to get an engagement ring in this scene. I've given this exactly no thought whatsoever. I forgot that was even in the movie until just now. I'm seriously going to just say the first thing that comes to mind. How about Clark has been talking to his mother about asking Lois to marry him. She wants him to use an engagement ring that's been in the family for generations, or maybe the one Jonathan gave to her. She hasn't had a chance to give it to him yet because he hasn't decided if he's ready to propose just now, but she knows he was going to ask for it at any time. So Martha gives Lois her ring because she knows he would want her to have it. Story Writing 101. Know your characters. What might they do in any given moment? 
make the story unfold because of choices they make. And if you're in a corner and you really want something to happen, but you didn't think of it based on characters' actions and consequences, see if you can reverse engineer a scene so that a character might plausibly do something that might get you there. That's not ideal, but it can work in a pinch. This is a really easy one, and it is indicative of just how lazy the script is from top to bottom. At the internment in Metropolis, I'm distracted by the choice of Amazing Grace played on the bagpipes, because that's right out of Wrath of Khan. I've looked into this, and that's apparently a common thing at state funerals. So it's maybe not fair to call it derivative, I guess, although I'd be surprised if Snyder didn't know that was the end of Wrath of Khan. But what makes it so distracting is how emotional and well-executed Spock's death was in that movie, and how forced and gimmicky this one feels in comparison. I would have avoided any comparisons to famous, beloved, major character deaths in genre movies were it me. I love the silver Superman emblem on the casket. One of the images from Death of Superman that I always found provocative, because it's such an oxymoron, is that symbol on a coffin or a tombstone. That's one of the things that choked me up a little on first viewing. The preacher at the Smallville funeral reads a Bible passage that obviously foreshadows Superman's return from the dead. Then Pete tells Martha the funeral has been paid by an anonymous donor, who is, of course, Bruce. We cut to him and Diana, and it's revealed that Bruce made sure Clark's body is buried in Smallville. I don't know how he managed that, but it is pretty classy. In the comics, Clark is presumed dead, missing in the chaos surrounding Doomsday during the Rampage, and Superman is buried in Metropolis. But that doesn't work here, because Doomsday mostly blew up empty buildings. This is probably the most destruction in a superhero movie with the least amount of casualties. And if nobody had complained at the end of Man of Steel, I'm sure thousands and thousands of people would be dead. Honestly, I'm not sure how the public and the people in Smallville think Clark Kent died. I'd love to read that article about it in the newspaper Perry's holding back at the planet. What's weirder about it is that Clark has an open casket funeral. And that's strange for a couple reasons. A, usually a body is embalmed before it's shown at a visitation or a funeral. I know that because I used to work at a funeral home. The embalming fluid helps to preserve it before it's shown. But Superman's body, for obvious reasons, couldn't be embalmed. It may stay looking preserved because it's Superman's body, but it would be pretty evident to a funeral director who that was. Maybe Lois and Martha allow the funeral home to know Clark is Superman, and we just don't get that scene. I wish we did. That would be a cool detail. And B, Clark's face is conveniently not shown in the casket, because the movie doesn't want us to consider that everyone there would know instantly Clark is Superman, unless he's wearing glasses in the casket. Although, maybe they know anyway. That's a problem anytime Clark returns to Smallville after he's Superman. Everyone there should know what he looks like without glasses on, unless he left younger or he wore glasses while he was growing up. It is possible the whole town knows, but then the movie should tell us that. And Perry White is at the funeral, so he would know too. It's awkward. I just would have buried his body but not had an open casket. Bruce decides to redeem himself for trying to sadistically murder Superman by working with Wonder Woman to find other metahumans. He says, I failed him in life, I won't fail him in death. I want to hear a killer say that at a murder trial. I failed him in life. That guy I lured to a kill room filled with death traps as I told him he was less than a man. Bit of an understatement, yes? Then, Bruce gives Diana a speech after she says that man built a world where standing together is impossible about how as crappy as people are to each other, they're still good. I want to like that. 
the idea that the world is cynical but not beyond hope because the human condition hasn't changed. People have the capacity for great evil and great compassion. And Superman didn't sacrifice himself because he was a god, he did it because he was a compassionate human being, who cared more about the well-being of others than his own. It's just hard to appreciate that here, because I so rarely feel like I'm looking at actual human beings at all in this movie. The message at his memorial is a good one, again, if this seemed more like real Superman. If you seek his monument, look around you. I think that means Superman should bring out the best in all of us. We can be like him too. But he wasn't around long enough, he didn't act enough like the Superman that would do that, and the circumstances surrounding his death would be too confusing and strange for me to buy that that's how the public would react. And after this, in future DCEU movies, we're going to pretend like Superman was always a beacon of hope and forget that a lot of people thought he was a murderer right before he died. I'm not saying Superman saving the world again wouldn't have turned some people around on him. I'm saying the reaction would likely be mixed. Then, Bruce tells Diana he has a feeling. A big threat is about to befall the world that superpowered people are going to need to hero up to fight. I assume he's just referring to his premonition, but I don't know why he assumes the parademons are still coming, which is the only threat he actually saw. He doesn't know about Darkseid or Steppenwolf or anything else. When the vision he had was all about a Superman as an evil dictator, and he's dead now. But somehow Bruce is actually right about it, because it's that very event, the death of Superman, that will bring the threat from the vision to Earth, as we'll learn from Looney Tunes Lex in prison when he talks to Batman. Lex knows Steppenwolf, and maybe Darkseid too, I'm not sure, is on his way after whatever was in the spaceship. The movie, once again, doesn't tell us enough, so all we have to go on is what Snyder says about it retroactively, and whatever explanation we might get from sequels, which we finally are going to get with the Snyder Cut. And that's releasing almost five years later, and might include things that a sequel not reworked and course-corrected in 2017 wouldn't have. All we get from Lex is that something ominous is coming from space because Superman is gone. Ding dong, the god is dead, he says. This is already strange. So Superman is a deterrent to alien invasion, even though he's been operating for less than two years? Why didn't Darkseid come to Earth before that? We know one mother box is already on Earth, so he has to know about it, and I don't know if the three tribes of man burying the mother boxes eons ago from the theatrical version is in the Snyder Cut, but if that's in continuity, then he definitely knows about Earth. Snyder just makes it worse in his commentary, and the trailers for the Snyder Cut make it clear that this will be cemented as what really happens here. Superman dies, and his screams reverberate throughout space, so evil bad guy gods know he's not alive to protect Earth anymore. Like I said earlier, Greek mythology logic. Snyder does not know if he's making a Homerian epic or a modern superhero film. He's so obsessed with both the idea of superheroes as our modern mythology and what if they existed in the real world, he puts them in a movie together and lets them completely contradict each other, like magnets repelling. Superman is a literal god who other gods can hear out in the realms beyond the Earth, and he's also a human man with a mom, just like Batman. Dealing with the paradox of being Superman, the impossibility of having a normal life, not being looked at like a god, not being held to a different standard, that's all good. That's what you should do with a Superman story. 
Superman and Lois, the CW series, goes there right away in its pilot. But even if there is a pantheon of real magical gods in this world, which absolutely could be married with all this, Superman is unequivocally not one of those. He is a man who gets his godlike powers because of the way his biology interacts with the sun. You can't scientifically explain beings heard a guy die from a billion light years away. I hope it somehow makes more sense in the Snyder Cut, but that seems about as far-fetched as the idea itself. I don't know why Batman is allowed in this prison to see Lex. If he was in Arkham already, there's an explanation. Batman says he has friends there. Who does he know in a Metropolis prison that would let a guy in who seems to be marking prisoners for death? Is everyone just fine with Batman now because he was with Superman when he died? Would anyone even know that since there was no one else around? Wonder Woman talks like she plans to keep operating in the shadows, so I assume not. Batman holds a burning brand next to Lex's head the whole time he's madly sequel-baiting Justice League, and then he punches the brand into the wall next to Lex. Look how far he's come, thanks to Superman. Again, don't forget about all those people he violently killed on his way to save Martha. It's exactly like the end of the Daredevil movie. He shows the main bad guy mercy just because he's important to manufacture character growth. That's sad. Ben Affleck had to do that twice, with 13 years in between. Oh, and Batman apparently brings dramatic and foreboding red lighting with him. That's an impressive effect to do on location with no visible lighting rig anywhere, Batman. But I have nothing negative to say about the operatic violin music and Eisenberg's manic he's coming speech ending with that ongoing ding 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 through the bars when Batman leaves. That is absolute perfection. It's the greatest last villain scene of all time. I would think he just keeps doing that until the moment he shows up in the Snyder Cut. While movers are taking Lex's father's study apart, the camera pushes in on that gothic painting we saw 18 hours ago now, toward the beginning of the movie, implying that Lex was right about demons coming from above, not below, he was just wrong about who the demons were. Because they're really sort of literally demons, Darkseid's parademons, which totally deflates the interesting thematic stuff early on. It really is a world where there's a clear-cut difference between the good guys and the bad guys, and people just haven't gotten the memo yet that they live in a black-and-white comic book. Superman either has to be morally ambiguous and become the altruistic hero, or the world has to really be wrong about him all along, and he changes it. And it's not quite either of those. The last shot is a push-in on Clark's casket, with the dirt Lois shoveled on it. It's only been lowered into the ground, not fully buried yet. And right before it cuts to black, the dirt subtly starts to rise. In his commentary, Snyder says it's just a tease. It doesn't mean anything. Which is a good description of the movie on the whole. It's apparently not Superman already rising from the dead. Not that that would make sense anyway, since levitating dirt isn't a power he has. So what was it even supposed to tease? Just the idea of rising, generally? Is it a beautiful lie, like the bats that lifted Clark out of the hole in his dream at the beginning? And imagine if that was somehow Superman getting out of the grave, the day he's buried, with Lois and a couple of cemetery workers standing there. It seemed like that was the tease in the theater. I couldn't figure out what else it was supposed to mean. Oh, he's already coming back to life. 
My imagination can't really do anything interesting with that situation. And at last, it's nearly time for my rating. But before we do that, of course, as always, let's find out what some of our patrons had to say about this movie with tweet-length reviews. And there are a lot of them this time, so let's get right into it. Connor Nielsen may be the most fascinatingly misguided blockbuster of the 2010s. Snyder approached Batman v Superman with a confidence rarely seen, yet nearly every decision is a baffling blunder. I have seen this movie more times than most films I love, and every time I see some new detail that makes it worse. I can't look away. One out of four. Ben Thompson. I really enjoy this movie quite a lot. I find all the performances compelling. Superman and Batman's arcs are both fascinating and done very well, with an amazing score and an ambitious story. Sadly, though, it falters when trying to build a universe, and a lot of its ideas aren't clear enough. It doesn't stick the landing on everything, but I highly respect what it's trying to do and feel what it gets right. It really gets right three out of four. Saqib Tariq, possibly the most disappointing blockbuster ever made. Had the potential to be great, turned out to be a convoluted mess that destroyed the DCEU. Ben Affleck is phenomenal in it, so is the score and cinematography. Civil War does what this film tried to, but better in every way. Save Martha, one out of four. John Sandoval. While it falters to build a universe, Ben Affleck steals the show as Batman, and Superman's story, when put back into the movie, is also quite interesting. I know it's not perfect, but I really like this movie, and I like what it's trying to do. Three out of four. Dan Torrey. It makes about as much sense as time traveling into dreams. Zero out of four. Victor Herman. It's much better with the sound off. Nick Mana says, one of the worst movies I've seen. It makes no sense, and worst of all, you don't care about these boring, violent, emotionless versions of these beloved characters. Should have been a classic, but instead, it's a failure. So you can say, I don't think it was very good. 0.5 out of 4. Kareem Roberts, my biggest heartbreak from this movie is that my little brother and sisters don't have a worthwhile Batman or Superman for their generation. Just borderline sociopathic fascists lit like Madonna in a funeral music video, one out of four. Caleb Brown, how could the first time Batman and Superman share the silver screen be this bad? With a fantastic cast and some interesting ideas on paper, they are all ruined by the insulting script, characters who are either bland or complete psychopaths, and action resulting in no regard for human life. 0.5 out of 4. Chewbacca's Lover. Never saw the Ultimate Edition, but I enjoyed the film in theaters even if it falls apart when you think about it. Malik Myers. I was there in Hall H when this movie was announced. The excitement in the room was palpable, and this is hands down one of the most baffling and disappointing films in the genre. Nonsensical plot, terrible and ill-defined villains, a monosyllabic and bland Superman, a murderous Batman with inconsistent motivations, and a director too self-indulgent to focus on story over visuals with a complete mess tying them together. Zero out of four. And they keep going. Jacob Schneider. The Martha thing is stupid. There, I said it. Other than that, this movie is overly long and overly serious with no room for fun. I could say more, but I'll leave it there. I give this movie a 1.5 out of 4. Super Billy. Batman v Superman is one of the most dull, lifeless, emotionally vacant, creatively misguided, poorly constructed, badly written, terribly edited, convoluted, and uninteresting superhero films, nay, films, period, I've ever seen. This film is an absolute disaster, one out of four. The Day Ghost, pain, one out of four. Dean Waldhart. 
Batman v Superman Dawn of Something or Other is a bafflingly awful film. This is the only film I can think of that is so aesthetically and artistically repugnant that I'd classify its existence in the world as immoral. It does violence to everyone who attempts to make beautiful, meaningful art. Zero out of four. Arnold Kim. Batman v Superman has some worthwhile elements, but is ultimately a narrative mess. A couple of solid performances by Ben Affleck and Jeremy Irons can't save a script that tries to do too many things and has no real cohesive vision. It tried to do Death of Superman, The Dark Knight Returns, set up Justice League, set up Wonder Woman, throw in a useless Africa subplot, before concentrating on what should have been the main narrative of the ideological difference between Batman and Superman. Back Studios. I'm so sorry, I love this movie. The style and score is great. I love Affleck and Irons, and heck, I even like Lex. I do think there's an okay movie buried, but I'm not blind to its literal hundreds of issues. Luckily, I have no credibility and enjoy it anyway. It's my guilty pleasure. I formally apologize for my sins, three out of four. Kevin gives it a 1 out of 4, the occasional good idea gasps for air while drowning in blaring boringness. Josh Hughes, a premise I had no interest in seeing executed in a way that doesn't make me ever want to see it again. Where they tried to break new ground, it just didn't work. 0.5 out of 4. Jacob May, I've really come around on this movie. I love the Theodician angle the movie takes on these characters, and Fong's cinematography is some of the best in any superhero film. I just wish its ideas were presented better, and this wasn't our mainline theatrical Batman and Superman. 2.5 out of 4. And finally, Christian Ogden. This isn't the train wreck its haters call it, but it isn't the misunderstood masterpiece its defenders call it either. Some decent performances and action scenes, including the best Batman combat we've ever gotten, struggled to overcome a muddled script, confusing villain, and one time that's easily 30 minutes too long. 2.5 out of 4. I have now written a novel's worth of words about Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. I am certifiably insane. Somehow I've gone from apologizing for writing a whole 25 minutes about Batman Begins a decade ago to whatever this has turned into. But the movie is so perplexing. I'm so confounded by choices in almost every scene. I don't know how else to do it. And now that I've put it under the microscope like this, I found so much more counterintuitive weirdness I never would have noticed just watching the film. I hoped against hope I could make more sense out of it. But I feel like I've only unraveled the tapestry further. I stand by the first word I used to describe it. It's fascinating. Like Doomsday, it's a bizarre freak of nature whose existence I can't explain. There is a great poignant Batman movie buried in here, like Superman's Empty Casket in Metropolis. I want a smart movie to explore whether Superman could fully be accepted if he showed up today, and if the world would allow him to be as powerful and as good as he's typically portrayed as. The movie is dripping with a style I want to see a whole comic book shared universe adopt, and I applaud it for not being concerned with realism, at least visually. It is Zack Snyder's total creative vision. I respect it for going its own way and for not being the same dull, uninspired, obligatory superhero movie I've seen a thousand times, at least until it adopts some of those tropes toward the end. But everyone involved here is making a different thing, which creates a souffle stuffed with a bunch of ingredients that don't go together and never rises. It's a concert where every player is looking at a different chart, every chart is in a different genre and key, and the baton was simply handed to the wrong conductor. 
I gave it this sort of attention because it started the entire DC film universe down a bizarre and constantly shifting path. It's the reason that universe is, at present, hardly even a universe, and why, five years and several more movies later, it doesn't have the cohesive, constantly evolving continuity Marvel has, and that Warner's so desperately wanted for itself. Like The Dark Knight, BVS changed things but into a nightmare future where Superman looks like a fascist dictator and the world of DC superheroes is in total shambles. And I lived with this movie as long as I did because I feel like it asked me to. It presents itself as such a deep, important, life-changing event, and I wanted to take it on those terms. And it just doesn't live up to the grandeur. And it only makes sense if you force it to. I'm giving Batman v Superman a 1.5 out of 4. So now it's time for the near impossible task of putting BVS on my ranked list. You can go to letterbox.com in the link in the description and see all of my rankings. And we've got to put this in the 1.5s, of course. And I thought this would be quite a bit lower, but just looking at a lot of the titles in the 1.5s, a lot of them are uh, boring and uninspired movies, and as baffling as BVS is, it's just more interesting than a lot of these. I, I can't see putting it lower than a Green Lantern or even a Ninja Turtles 2014. Like, that movie makes more sense and is maybe paced better, maybe not as stretched out, certainly not as stretched out, but BVS is still more interesting. Like, I'm, I'm finding the fascinating nature of this being the thing that it's putting it a lot higher in the 1.5. So I think I'm going to sandwich it, believe it or not, right between Batman Returns and X-Men The Last Stand. I think it's going to be the new 107. And as much as I don't love Batman Returns, I, I'm finding myself wanting to put it above that. Uh, I don't know that I like uh, Rise of the Silver Surfer being higher than it necessarily. Uh, and Ninja Turtles 2, I think, absolutely should be. So it should go somewhere in there, and maybe I'll have to retool this at some point, because I don't know if I like now where Rise of the Silver Surfer is sitting. But yeah, I'm going to put it at the new 107 spot, right above X-Men The Last Stand. Uh, so as always, thanks a lot for listening, folks. Uh, I want to thank our patrons, as always, for supporting the show. If you'd like to become a patron and help us out with uh, the program with Superhero Rewind and Geekvolution at large, you can go to patreon.com slash geekvolution and just that bottom $2 tier gets you access to early episodes of Superhero Rewind. And at the $5 tier, you can put in your own tweet-length reviews for whatever movie I am about to review. And I want to say thanks uh, individually to all of our $10 patrons right now. Those are our Patreon producers. And let's go ahead and do that. Thanks very much to IronBat1993, Zach, Wendell Jones, Nick Manna, Nicholas Morgan, Michael Micheletti, Michael Gulick, Kareem Roberts, Jacob Schneider, Damon Begay, CM Productions, Victor, Thomas Edgehill, The Day Ghost, Super Billy, Stone Gasman, Michael McAllister, Lone Wolf Jedi of Gotham, Kevin, Carl Maxey, Bag Studios, Josh Hughes, John McLean, Ian McKee, Hunter Russell, Dylan Muschiello, Chewbacca's Lover, and Caleb. You guys are awesome. Really appreciate it. 
This was an absolute insane endeavor, and if you got this far, I can't even believe it. You guys are wonderful. Thanks a bunch for listening. Next week, Justice League, and then the week after that on Geekvolution, we'll be doing a blind commentary on the Snyder Cut, and we'll be doing a spoiler cast on that movie as well. More rewinds coming soon after that. I'll see you again real soon, folks.